and welcome to the Michigan Murders. I'm Laura. And I'm Stephanie. I think I'm first this week, right? I think so. Okay, so (laughs) mine today, I feel like I should put a trigger warning with it because it's not the typical, like, murder. It involves discussion of suicide, so... I feel like if that bothers anyone, and that's a tough topic, you should probably skip my part because of this. And today I'm going to be talking to you about someone who was charged with murder, but was it really? I'm talking to you about Dr. Kevorkian. Oh, wow. Who, if you remember, was big in the news basically throughout the 90s for the stuff that he was doing. Murad Jacob Jack Kevorkian was born in Pontiac, Michigan on May 26, 1928, to Armenian immigrants from Turkey. Kevorkian was a child prodigy. He was moved up to junior high in the sixth grade and taught himself multiple languages, including German, Russian, Greek, and Japanese. I would imagine this would make a kid pretty lonely because he was one to two years behind all the kids in his grade, plus the, you know, languages thing. Kevorkian graduated from Pontiac Central High School in 1945 at the age of 17, and in 1952 he graduated from the University of Michigan Medical School in Ann Arbor. Kevorkian spent decades campaigning for the legalization of euthanasia. In the 1950s, he was dubbed Dr. Death after he began photographing patients' eyes to determine exact time of death and campaigned for the use of bodies of death row inmates for medical experimentation. After seeing so many terminally ill patients suffer, Kevorkian was convinced that euthanasia had a place in medicine. And in a 1959 Journal of Criminal Law, Criminology, and Political Science article, Kevorkian wrote, I propose that a prisoner condemned to death by due process of law be allowed to submit, by his own free choice, to medical experimentation under complete anesthesia, at the time appointed for administering the penalty, as a form of execution in lieu of conventional methods prescribed by law. So this guy, who you can tell, is yeah. a little bit of a weird one, and uh, some of his experimentation stuff later on just gets, like, weirder. Doctors at the University of Michigan, where Convorkian worked, were opposed to the proposal, and he chose to leave rather than stop speaking about his beliefs, and he had little support there. After a 1976 Supreme Court decision... Greg v. Georgia reinstituted the death penalty. Kevorkian advocated for harvesting organs from inmates after the death penalty was carried out as a way to get transplants for sick patients, but did not gain the cooperation of prison officials. And I can't say I blame him there, because would death by something like lethal injection, would those organs even be safe to use? Because you're pumping the person full of chemicals. It wouldn't. So I don't know what, like, what kind of method the death would then have to be for the organs to still be good. It just seems weird. Yeah. While at Pontiac General Hospital, Kevorkian successfully experimented with transfusing blood from the recently deceased into live patients. (laughs) That is so gross to me. I mean, maybe fine, whatever. Uh, He thought it might be useful to the U.S. military to help wounded soldiers in battle, but... Not surprisingly, the Pentagon was not interested. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, nah, fam, we're good. <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah. 
It was like, oh, our friend just died. Let's take his blood right away to help someone else. Like, maybe not. Kevorkian continued to write articles about the ethics of euthanasia into the 80s. And in 1987, Kevorkian began placing advertising in Detroit newspapers as a consultant for death counseling. You can see where this is going. So in 1989, 54-year-old Janet Atkins was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and in 1990 contacted Dr. Kevorkian after hearing of his services. Kevorkian was interviewed for a New York Times article about the trial and Janet's death, and it came out on June 6, 1990. He said that Janet Atkins, who lived in Portland, Oregon, got in touch with him as a result of the publicity, and that he first met her the previous weekend at a restaurant near his home in Holly, Michigan. He said he explained the procedure to her at dinner and decided she was alert enough to understand. Word of Atkins' death, which the doctor said took less than six minutes and occurred in an old Volkswagen van at a local park, alarmed many experts in medical ethics and confused many legal experts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine? Kill someone in the van. Yes. Just here, let me set this van up for you at a park. Isn't this wonderful? Oh my gosh. It goes on to say, the case raises the specific legal question of what constitutes assisted suicide and the more general philosophical question of what role, if any, doctors should play in helping their seriously ill patients to die. And the weird part of this is her family knew what she wanted and she wrote them a suicide note. And her husband said that she told him she wanted to die almost immediately after getting that diagnosis. Part of her note said, I have decided for the following reasons to take my own life. This is a decision taken in a normal state of mind and is fully considered. I have Alzheimer's disease and I do not want to let it progress any further. I do not want to put my family or myself through the agony of this terrible disease. So that's tough. <laughs> I can see why all the legal questions... Not really, you know, I don't know if there's anything even before this dealing with anything remotely close. Janet's death was also the first time Kevorkian's death machine was used. Kevorkian said he inserted an intravenous tube into Mrs. Atkins' arm and dripped harmless saline solution through it. Mrs. Atkins then pressed a button that stopped the saline and replaced it with thiopental, which caused unconsciousness, he said. After a minute, machines switched solutions again to potassium chloride, which stopped the heart and brought death within minutes. He said the 54-year-old Mrs. Adkins had a wonderful life, a good life, but she was slipping from an incurable disease and she didn't want to suffer. Just before she died, Dr. Kovorkian said, she looked at me with grateful eyes and said, thank you, thank you, thank you. That's his version. Right. <laughs> so, I did... <laughs> For him to say that still, it creeps me out, honestly, a little bit. Yeah, I didn't even know Kevorkian had stuff in Michigan. I remember him being all over the news. And I remember, like, a lot of the trial, but... Yeah, pretty much all, all took place in Michigan. Kevorkian's argument was that while he provided the machine, Janet Atkins was the one to actually push the button to administer the fatal doses. The charges against Kevorkian were dropped on December 13, 1990, because at the time, there were no laws against assisted suicide. 
However, in 1991, the state of Michigan revoked Kevorkian's medical license, meaning he could no longer legally practice medicine or work with patients. However, we know that didn't stop him. Between 1994 and 1997, Kevorkian was tried four times for assisting suicides, with Jeffrey Figer as his lawyer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you, you live in Michigan, you've probably seen his ads at one time or another. You know, Figer. They've been everywhere as long as I can remember. Kevorkian was acquitted three times, and the fourth ended in mistrial. And this made him a little cocky, and that's where he finally gets into trouble later. And I, I find that part kind of hilarious. But in a November 22nd, 1998 CBS News 60-minute broadcast, Kevorkian shared a videotape he made of the September 17th, 1998 volunteer euthanasia of 52-year-old Thomas Yoke, who was in the final stages of Lou Gehrig's disease. Oh no, he didn't. Even though Yoke did sign the informed consent forms, Kevorkian himself administered the lethal injection. And this is something he shared with everyone. This was in the news. Like, CBS News 60 Minutes, that was... Right. I remember watching 60 Minutes with my parents as a kid, so, you know. (laughs) This was the biggest difference because this was the first time reported that the person getting the injection didn't push the button themselves. During the tape, Kevorkian dared authorities to try to convict him for mercy killings when Yoke's family was supportive of the decision. This is where he done fucked up. (laughs) He poked the bear on national television. (laughs) Well, on broadcast. So, on November 25th, 1998, three days after the broadcast, Kevorkian was charged with second-degree murder and delivery of a controlled substance. Because, one... He administered the injection rather than the person doing it themselves. And two, as his medical license has been revoked after the 1990 death of Janet Atkins, Kevorkian was no longer allowed to possess the controlled substance he used. And it seems like they could have charged him with that earlier, but I I think they were more focused on the death part. Mm -hmm. So I think with them combined with having this proof that he provided to everyone... That he was the one that pushed the button. And then on top of that, drugs that he shouldn't have had in the first place. He fucked himself over. Like, big time. Yeah. On March 22nd, 1999, jury deliberations began in the murder trial. Kevorkian discharged his attorneys and decided to represent himself. Here's when I want to put a Star Trek reference. (laughs) Damn it, Jack, you're a doctor, not a lawyer. (laughs) But, you know... Technically not even a doctor either at that point. However, the judge ordered a criminal defense attorney to be available as standby for counsel. With no surprise, Kevorkian had a hard time presenting evidence, making arguments, and his witnesses weren't allowed because the judge didn't find the witness testimony relevant to the trial. After two days trial, Kevorkian was found guilty of second degree homicide and was sentenced to 10 to 25 years in prison. Judge Jessica Cooper said, This is a court of law, and you said you invited yourself here to take a final stand, but this trial was not an opportunity for a referendum. The law prohibiting euthanasia was specifically reviewed and clarified by the Michigan Supreme Court several years ago in a decision involving your very own cases, sir. So the charge here should come as no surprise to you. You invited yourself to the wrong forum. Well, 
We are a nation of laws, and we are a nation that tolerates differences of opinion because we have a civilized and a nonviolent way of resolving our conflicts that weighs the law and adheres to the law. We have the means and the methods to protest the laws with which we disagree. You can criticize the law, you can write or lecture about the law, you can speak to the media, petition the voters. So she was, <laughs> she was done with this shit, <laughs> it sounds like. Like, whether you agree with it or not, you broke the law. Govarkin was sentenced to a prison in Coldwater, and over the course of his sentence was denied parole multiple times. In a 2005 MSNBC interview, he said he would not resume helping people die and instead would focus on campaigning to have the law changed. In 2006, Kevorkian was terminally ill with hepatitis C that was likely contracted while researching blood transfusion in the 60s. I wonder if it's from a dead person. Imagine that. Yeah. Imagine that. Imagine that. So because of his illness, he applied for and received parole in 2007. Part of the conditions of the release was that he would not help anyone die or provide care for anyone 62 and older or disabled. So even though they were letting him go, they were still like, mm, we don't trust you, but you're not going <laughs> to do something you shouldn't. After his release, he gave a number of lectures and interviews. In March 2008, Kevorkian announced plans to run for U.S. Congress. He ran independent for Michigan's 9th Congressional District and received 2.6% of the vote. I do not remember seeing that he was even running in 2008. Well, from the, for that district, it wouldn't have been, because it would have been a different district than you, yeah. it wouldn't even be on your ballot. You'd think that would make the news, but, like, big news, you, though, like, right, hey, you remember right. that guy <laughs> that was killing people? Hey, yeah, yeah, remember that dude? Yeah. <laughs> like he's running, and he still got 2.6% of the vote as an independent, so, you know, whatever. <laughs> Gavorkian was hospitalized in May 2011 and died June 3rd three days after turning 83, at the William Beaumont Hospital in Royal Oak. Kevorkian was buried in Whitechapel Memorial Park Cemetery in Troy, and in 2015, the 1968 Volkswagen Type 2 van in which Jack Kevorkian assisted some of his suicidal patients was bought by paranormal investigator Zach Baggins <laughs> from Ghost Adventures for display in his haunted museum in Las Vegas. So if you want to see the death fan, you just have to go to Vegas. <laughs> what a purchase. Oh um, and overall, according to his lawyer, Jeffrey Feiger, Kevorkian assisted in the deaths of 130 terminally ill people between 1990 and 1998. So te technically, like, super serial killer? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Mass serial killer. So, I mean, I don't like, know if there's a term. I think it fits because he had a type that he would go for. You know, it was still, even though it was assisted suicide, it was still against the law. So it was still technically murder. And even though they wanted to die, that was still a lot of people. And I imagine if a serial killer really wanted to, like, kill people because they enjoy it, if they go for people that want to die, then I I would think that in their heads that would like make it okay, so that yeah, there's something about him killing that many people. It's a little disturbing. 
but but that's all from like wikipedia and um the new york times article today i have the state albin street massacre on the night of july 3rd 1929 benny and santina evangelist along with their four children were found horrifically murdered in their home in detroit on st albin and mac an axe was used as the murder weapon an evangelist's wife and children were killed while they slept in their beds. Oh my gosh. While evangelist was found decapitated at his desk. Ah! Yeah. Oh, that's worse. It is still unsolved. And over the many years since, there have been numerous theories as to why someone would murder this family. Now, here comes what I think is the reason. <laughs> Known as a mystic and a healer, evangelist was the leader of a cult. Oh. I, my mind went straight to mob hit, but that, yeah, okay. <laughs> Who received as much as $10 per reading, which for that time in 1929 is a lot. Yeah, that's quite a bit. Using unorthodox me- methods to heal the mentally and physically challenged. His methods ranged from religion to black magic to prescribing herbal me- medicine. Just two years after arriving in the U.S. in 1904, Evangelist claims to have begun receiving visions from God. Oh, boy. Evangelist published a four-volume Bible he called The Oldest History of the World Discovered by Occult Science, describing himself as a prophet. You can see where I'm going with this. Like, it's like, I mean, I think I see a motive. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. That's okay. Take a lot of people off for that one. In his basement, Evangelist erected an odd spiritual sanctuary consisting of wax dolls and figures hung by wires from the ceiling depicting celestial planets. Oh, that's so creepy. <laughs> the basement served as the church for his sermons, and he referred to his Bible as the sun. Oh, man. Benny Evangelist had amounted quite a few enemies. Mostly those who believed they were being ripped off. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Some claimed that he overcharged them for things like love potions and promises of cures. The night before the murders happened, Benny had placed a call to the watchman of a house that was being demolished. He had told the watchman that he had bought all of the salvageable lumber from the wreck and would arrange for the wood to be picked up and delivered to his home. The plan was that he would meet the truck the next morning to pay the delivery men. Evangelist and his family were slaughtered later that night, and the delivery men were a supposed no-show. He had planned to have the money to pay them the following day as well, yet no cash was found inside the home following the murder. Hmm. So somebody took that one. (laughs) Yeah. Police were never able to procure the name of the delivery company, but presumed money to be a motive. According to an article on July 3rd from the United Press, Benny's head had been completely severed from his body and was on a chair near the bed in which his and his wife's bodies were found. Ew! So they took the head out of the room and put the head with the wife? No. It's different. Like, from what I found, like, different articles were saying different things. Oh, okay. Like from what I was reading, where I where I got my created my script from, what I was reading, it was like the Associated Press would say one thing, but the United Press would say another thing ah, back in nineteen twenty nine. Okay, so it was like who was telling the truth back then, and then the police were saying something different 
So it was like, hmm, yeah, it's weird something's one. not added up. <laughs> Benny, 43, Santina, 36, and their four children, Angeline, 8, Matilda, 5, J3, and their 18-month-old son, Morio, were found by a neighbor. The story from the Associated Press on July 3rd reads as, Sitting before his desk, which also served as an altar, his hands were folded as though in prayer. The body of Benny Evangelist, Mr. Keeler, and religious fanatic was found shortly before noon on Wednesday. The head lay on the floor beside the chair. Oh, okay. The bodies of his wife and four children found upstairs. Their skulls crushed. Oh. Police are working the theory that Evangelist was the victim of a second religious fanatic. It is believed the slayings took place about midnight. Wayne County Coroner James Burgess commented in the paper the following morning. This is the most unusual case. A single perverted maniac must have killed them. Although it seems impossible that some of their screams would not be heard. Yeah. I mean, you would think. This part makes me irritated. A funeral took place on July 6th. 6th? I can't talk. And a crowd of around 3,000 curious residents filled the streets. Police hoped to find a suspect at the funeral, arresting one man who was, and I quote, acting queerly <laughs> with excited suspicion. <laughs> I was like, what does that mean? So, you seem gay. Let's just arrest you. You might have done it. Yeah. What? But they released him short, well, shortly after. Well, I think gay back it then was, meant, or even acting acting queerly? What yeah, is that, that mean? acting queerly with excited suspicion. But in the 20s, did queerly just mean strange? I don't know. Language use has changed. Yeah. True. Very true. They They luckily released him shortly after, but it was yeah. like... So if he was, if we take it as he was acting strangely, uh, could just mean that he wasn't sad he was dead. <laughs> and very well could have been someone he ripped off that was like, I'm glad you're dead. I'm going to go see your body being put in the ground. <laughs> right. On July 4th, every police squad in Detroit was ordered to join in on a citywide search for the murderer. And police initially investigated a connection to a murder of a mother and her three children two weeks prior. But the connection wasn't valid. Okay. I don't... It's weird for, like, within a two-week span, two families to just... But I digress. Yeah, because you don't know then if it was a serial killer or if it was just coincidence. Right. No trace of a weapon was found in the home, although police did find bloody fingerprints on the door latch. Hmm. Which back then, like... They're not going to be good with evidence. Yeah, you couldn't do anything with that. Like You basically have to catch someone in the act, otherwise... Yeah, blood evidence means nothing. Fingerprints would... Yeah. <laughs> there was a reward of $1,000 being offered up by Detroit police for information on the case. Which back then, $1,000 for a reward is an insane amount of money. Yeah. Angelo Depoli was arrested the day of the murder... With a blood-covered knife. But police couldn't connect him to the family. Even though neighbors claimed that he was a frequent visitor at the home. Oh. That makes no like, sense. Like, this was like... <laughs> this one made me mad. Because it was like... I mean, evidence... 
is 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 kind of there. Yeah. Might be circumstantial. Might not be. Follow that. They're like, eh. Yeah, the I mean the bloody knife's a bit suspicious. <laughs> but Yeah, a blood covered knife. But and neighbors claim that he was a frequent visitor yeah, at the home. I, I would say that would be your connection. But sure. Right. In March of nineteen thirty, the Associated Press published a report with the headline Eyewitness to Brutal Detroit Axe Slang finally turns up. The eyewitness was a dog. <laughs> what? <laughs> Excuse me, Sparky. This... Can you come here, please, boy? This is what the report said. The witness is a shaggy brown mongrel dog, which belonged to the children of Benny Evangelist. The animal disappeared at the time Evangelist and his wife and four children were hacked to death on July 3rd, 1929. In the course of routine, a record was made of the dog's license number, but the dog was not found. Yesterday, a woman reported that a dog with a 1929 license number had come to her home. When she learned who had owned the animal, she decided not to adopt it. <laughs> Poor dog. <laughs> like it's the dog's fault. Yeah. You didn't protect that family. You ran out of there. I'm not taking you in. You've seen things. Right. Three years after the gruesome murders, a man nicknamed the Rear Axle Murderer. Okay. We'll have to look into that one for a future reference because I need to know who that is. Yeah. Robert Harris confessed. Police thought they had solved the case. But after investigating his claims, they found Harris to be lying. There have been leads from time to time, but the case has remained cold. And then there's also, due to this, the legend of St. Alban Street. Many say that the land where the family lived near the corner of St. Alban and Mac is haunted. There have been reports of a headless man seen wandering around, along with disembodied voices and screams. The house has since been demolished. And a book titled Detroit Occult Murders details a string of murders. A string of murders between 1929 and 1931, all centered around St. Alban Street. Aha. Uh-huh. Hmm. So, yeah, kind of odd. Yeah. And a dog is an eyewitness. Like, why would you call it an eyewitness? Like, the missing dog was found. Why is this just an eyewitness? Did... Did the dog tell you what it saw? Yeah. <laughs> Bark once for yes and twice for no. <laughs> Dang AP. Yeah. Yeah. Old news articles or something else. <laughs> Truly. They say the weirdest things and it doesn't even like why. <laughs> yes. This dog was an eyewitness to a murder. Yeah. Okay. Uh... <laughs> Likely. But it's not like it can give you any information. Yeah. I mean, unless it's carrying the murder weapon with fingerprints and everything in its collar, which he, highly unlikely. He's seen some things, but he's not very helpful. Unless the dog's carrying the axe that it like <laughs> used to slaughter the family. <laughs> when it got excited, wagging its tail, just started hacking. Yeah. And the whole guy <laughs> with the bloody knife thing is something else. Yeah. Like, why didn't you follow that? Yeah. Why is that nightfall, buddy? Well, you know, um, deer. You live in Detroit. 
uh, rats. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. It's, like, the thing is, it's like, yeah, a knife wouldn't have been used to decapitate the man. No. And they were, like, hacked with an axe and stuff like that. Yeah. But still. With a string of murders, I would be suspicious. Yep. So that's crazy. Weird. Yeah. I wonder how much money he had on him for lumber. Because that's, I guess robbery could be motive. But then why go after the kids? That's a, it wouldn't make sense. No, that's a dick move. If you got something against the guy, don't don't also kill his the whole family that's messed up and it had to have been somebody that's been there that knew where each individual person would have been yeah and the guy with the bloody knife was the one that had been there multiple times so you know i'm assuming the lumber company had to have something to do with it or the guy the watchman of the house that was being demolished yeah because he told him he planned to have the money on him the delivery men supposedly never showed up, but the money was gone. Yeah. So it makes me wonder if the watchman was the one doing the murders, went there, got the money, and just never sent out the delivery team? I don't know. It's the, the, the whole thing. It's weird. Everything is suspicious. <laughs> so what is your, uh, what's your hell yes for this week? I don't know. <laughs> I've been not feeling well. Yesterday I had to stay home from work because I was like throwing up. Oh. So I haven't been feeling the best. I'm pretty tired. <laughs> Nothing really fun and exciting has happened this week for me. Oh. <laughs> A girl I work with beat the heck out of a customer who decided to be homophobic towards my manager and tried to push him and shoulder check him and she kind of uh served her her tail on a platter and oh, man. <laughs> that make it's <laughs> i mean if you're gonna be homophobic expect something to happen <laughs> i mean out in public, of all places. Come on, get it together. Yeah. And didn't you say you heard that the woman, like, basically rammed into him? Yeah, shoulder checked him. Yeah. Pushed him. Yeah. She was mad because she was putting her alcoholic beverage in a to-go cup. And we can't legally allow that. Yeah. So my manager went and took her drink and was like, well, you can't have this now. We can't, we can't have this. And she got mad and called her, called him the F slur. So she's surprised. And, yes. Yeah. And shoulder checked him really hard. And my friend, the server bartender, got her good. Yeah. I mean, like. I guess. <laughs> Other customers saw it and started tipping her well because they were like, heck yeah. <laughs> yeah, like if you can't bring it with you, just chug it really fast. <laughs> I mean, come on. I know dr drinks when you go out are expensive, but I mean, mix, mix your if own. If you're not going to be able to drink it, yeah. And you know you're not going to be able to drink it. Yeah. 
That's crazy. Well, I spent yesterday uh, cleaning my son's room with him, sorting through toys. And I was happy with this because, you know, small children, when you usually most of the time when you tell them you need to get rid of stuff and you need to sort through and decide what you want to keep and what's going to go. Like, he did a really good job. (laughs) He's like, okay, I don't want to keep this. I don't want to keep this. I don't play with this anymore. So I have three kitchen size garbage bags of like trash that was in there, stuff that was broken, things he doesn't use anymore. So there's like one bag that was just garbage stuff that he had in there and the other two were toys he doesn't use anymore. So I was happy. Some of them were like bigger action figure things and giant cars and stuff. So I was like, thank you for getting these out of here. So he set up his little, he's got like a play corner in his room now. So he's got his Legos and his toys and everything is sorted. And he's like, look, I have room to play now. <laughs> yes. You're like, yes. Spoiled that's child. How <laughs> if you get rid of stuff from when you, because he gets spoiled by both sides of our families when it comes to his birthday and then Christmas, which are within a couple months of each other. <laughs> and they all like to buy him big size things so yeah making room is, is always <laughs> it's always welcome <laughs> well thank you for listening everybody be careful out there and watch out for the crazies bye, bye. thank you for listening to this week's episode the music titled teller of the tales was provided by kevin mcleod and can be found at incomtech.filmmusic.io.